0: Dear family members of First Lutheran Church and cherished friends in Christ, grace and peace to you in the saving power and grace of the one to whom the psalmist would especially point us this day and always, that is to God who is our refuge and our strength of very present help in trouble, amen. To paint our Gospel text today with a bit of contemporaryity, picture these early disciples of Jesus in freshly pressed white lab jackets, young medical students, residents, now making their rotations through the hospital rooms of life, supervised by the great attending physician, Jesus himself. And like all residents, the disciples were zealous to try to find an answer to the why. The why of suffering. That dark piece of the jigsaw puzzle of life that we can never quite seem to fit into place. Now, the disciples had done their homework, and they were well aware of the arguments that concerned the causal connection between sin. And suffering. Such causality was more or less assumed in Jesus' day and to a significant degree still operates in our own time. So let's look with the disciples at some of the classic Old Testament texts, those DSM-5s or other diagnostics that were informing their thinking. For example, the very first of the Ten Commandments recorded in the Torah in Exodus 20 that states, For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and mothers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who sin against me. Or again from Job chapter 4, As I have seen, witnesses Job, those persons who plow iniquity and sow trouble, that is sin, reap the same by the breath of God. The logic then would go something like this. If you suffer evil or tragedy, suffering in your life, therefore, you ought to infer that you've done something sinful, for which God is punishing you. This is referred to by biblical scholars as the retribution dogma in the Old Testament. And so if you're listening closely to these two examples from Exodus 12 and Job 4, you can understand why the disciples thought they were being quite thorough in giving a two-part diagnosis and examining the suffering of this young blind man. And so we hear them saying in the second verse, Rabbi who sinned, this man, Allah Job 4, or his parents, Allah Exodus 12, that he was born blind. But now, watch how Jesus, who is the light of the world, shines God's healing presence into all the darkness here. Look with me for a moment at verse three. Jesus answered his disciples, neither this man nor his parents sinned, for he was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. And so, as at the very beginning of creation, there is this boom, bazinga. There's this big bang of a new life and wondrous light that broke the darkness. If we move now just for a moment into verses 6 and 7, we see baptismal imagery all over the place here. As Jesus touches the man's eyes with mud made from human spittle and clay, We might say Jesus never was one much for social distancing. And then tells him to wash with the water at the pool of Siloam. The man does and he receives his sight as Jesus promised. And so it is at the conclusion of our baptismal liturgy that we hear this sending voice of Christ as his light joins with our lives, and he pours this light into our lives, saying, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now to step back again into verse four. Jesus says, we must work the works of God the Father who sent me while it is still day, for night is coming when no one can work. Note the sense of urgency here. Most likely it is referring to the night of Jesus' coming crucifixion. And also note the first word here in verse four. It is the word we. Yes, this is what we might call the royal we of the royal priesthood. Jesus is sending us his ongoing light in the world now some 2,000 years later to give expression to his ongoing story of salvation and healing, to share his sacramental word and his sacramental touch. You see, Jesus is more concerned about the future than the past. A new testament is breaking in and still is upon our old, sin-sick world. As the 20th century Roman Catholic priest and theologian Ed Skilabakes puts it eloquently People are the words by which God continues to tell God's story. But now there's a backlash of blindness, of the law turning back upon itself within the minds of the Pharisees and the other people gathered in verse 13. Why? Because Jesus had not only healed the young blind man in such an unconventional way, but he healed him on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees in particular couldn't fit this into their assumptive word and world with their doctrinal set of boxes such as the retributive dogma. We need a double blind study first. Check with the neighbors, the parents, where is this blind guy? Is this Jesus board certified with the AMA? Celebration? No, rather interrogation. They were like the self-righteous character, her name Mrs. Watts, W A T T S in Flannery O'Connor's novel Wise Blood. Who's portrayed by Flannery with some ironic humor when she writes, it was plain that Mrs. Watts was so enlightened and so well adjusted that she didn't even have to think anymore. Well, they were now so up in their heads with their, we know, we know that, we know this, but they had nothing in their hearts. Now take a deep breath with me here. In all the suffering and tragedies of life, whether it's physical or mental illness, divorce, confrontation with death, loneliness, the loss of a friend, we can feel so out of control, especially in this time of the chaotic coronavirus universe. At times, none of the pieces of life's puzzle seem to fit and so like the Pharisees we too assign blame to others ourselves and yes even to God saying things like well it's God's will or whatever trying to make the inexplicable more reasonable and restore a measure of sanity to our lives There appears to be some comfort in naming the source of our trouble trying to, T-G-I-F, nail it down. But Jesus, the great physician, the healer of our soul deep down, is teaching us here to resist our efforts of leaning on our own understanding or pointing blame, but gives us a new word, a revelation that can bring light out of darkness, victory out of defeat, and even meaning out of meaninglessness. In brief, let me share with you three points of light, even in the midst of this time of a coronavirus. That is, how can we see these as defining and not simply defeating times. Number one, times of suffering can bring wisdom. This is to say, some of the most caring and empathetic people you'll ever meet are almost always those who've known deep sorrow, suffering in their lives. You know this as well as I. This past week I've been rereading some poetry by the late David Sperber. (laughs) a dear friend and family member of First Lutheran Church, a wounded healer and sage hospital chaplain whose wisdom was heightened by battling cancer for many years. In a poem that he entitled, Spiritual Seeking, David shares this insight. The fainter the star, the darker the night, you need to find it. Second, suffering can break down autonomy in order to create community. In times of great suffering, such as the current threat of a pandemic, it's usually impossible to see how pain or tragedy can ever lead to anything good or creative, like in the Old Testament story of Joseph. As for us, hindsight is a luxury. The further we're removed from our suffering and pain, the more likely we're able to accept the possibility that there's some greater good that can come out, that moves right back into our gospel text of making God manifest. This has been the witness of countless Christians who've been convinced that they are more empathetic and compassionate people because of shared suffering. Think of the many support groups that have been birthed because of a solidarity in suffering. AA, hospice, mothers against drunk driving and other support groups. Again, note Jesus' first word there in verse four of the text. We must work together. And finally, suffering can drive us to Christ and his cross. But let's not wax philosophical here or risk romanticizing suffering. It's brutal and often tears people in half. And for many, the suffering tragedies of life do seem meaningless. Why? Where's the meaning? Where in the world is God? And so it is in such times that we look to the cross and we hear Jesus saying, as recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear friends in Christ, in the midst of this Lenten season, as we walk together through the various valleys of the shadow, it is here, it is here that we find God in Christ, pointing us once again to the light that breaks the darkness, in the shadow of his cross. God bringing life out of light, light out of darkness, and yes, even meaning out of meaninglessness. The world in all its blindness continues to look to Jesus on the cross with the Pharisees of every time and place, to him who is without sin and yet persists chronically in asking, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he should be crucified. But for our sake, In salvation, God is even more persistent and steadfast in his saving mercy and forgiving grace, saying, It was not that this man sinned, this my beloved son, but that my love for you might be revealed through him. And so we, like the young man once blind, but who are now given sight, are called to share this light of the world as at the heart of this gospel text Would you like to become his disciples too? And now may God, who is our refuge and strength, of very present help and trouble, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in these defining times of faith. Amen.